Well, we will be kicking off a study of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Uh, So if you're going to be using the Pew Bibles in front of you, that's going to be on page 942 of the Pew Bibles in front of you. 942. We'll be working through this book, Lord willing, over the next nine weeks or so. And this morning, we'll be looking at chapter one. Um, I'll give some more introductory comments about this incredible letter in just a bit. But first, I will read through this chapter. Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse, as we have already said. So now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preach is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult with any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia and later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Well, this is the word of the Lord. On May 21st, 1922, Harry Emerson Fosdick took the pulpit of the old First Presbyterian Church in Manhattan to deliver what would become his most famous sermon. The title was, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? He said in that sermon, What the church needed more than ever was a spirit of liberality and tolerance, of charity towards the multitude of reverent Christians who have been unable to keep this new knowledge in one compartment of their minds, and the Christian faith in another. What is this new knowledge that Fosdick was speaking of? Well, he argued that modern science had made the belief in the virgin birth ridiculous, and it wasn't essential to Christianity. Likewise, the inerrancy of Scripture and the second coming of Christ in the clouds 
were fanciful ideas and not doctrines which Christians needed to hold to, and certainly not ones that should define and divide Christians. Elsewhere, this so-called Baptist pastor actually also denied the deity of Christ. For Fosdick, then, the fundamentalists were those who held to historic Christianity, the Christianity we confess together reading the Nicene Creed. You see, Fosdick sought to remove the boundary markers around local churches tied to these historic doctrines. At one point, he called doctrines opinions, saying this, courtesy and kindness and tolerance and humility and fairness are right. Opinions may be mistaken. Love never is. Well, John D. Rockefeller Jr. was so impressed with Fosdick that when Fosdick had to leave the church over that sermon, he built him his own church. And he loved that sermon so much, he made 130,000 copies of it and sent them to all the Protestant ministers around the country. Except, he recommended they change the title to this, The New Knowledge and the Christian Faith. He said, the new knowledge was everything. For Fosdick and Rockefeller and the many who have followed in their wake ever since, we need to keep adjusting the Bible and the gospel to fit the cultural mood of the day. Well, as we begin our study of Galatians this morning, we will see that Paul will find himself in a very similar situation. He has some agitators, what I'm calling them, who are stirring up the churches there in Galatia. But rather than arguing for a new knowledge that needs to adjust the gospel, they're arguing for an old knowledge. They're going to be arguing that new covenant Christians need to live under old covenant rules and expectations and regulations. Well, we'll see these details play out in our study. Uh, for now, the title of this morning's sermon is No Other Gospel, and we'll walk through it in the three points, greeting the Galatians, anathematizing the agitators, and gospelizing the Gentiles. By the way, gospelizing is a word in old dictionaries. They sadly got rid of it. It's a shame. They need to put it back in there. My argument this morning is simple. Jesus plus anything equals nothing, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Once again, Jesus plus anything equals nothing, but Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Well, before we dive into our first point, this is the first sermon in the series. Let me give us a little more background on this letter to the Galatians. Uh, one overly simplified way of structuring this book is this. It falls into three parts, you could say. It's, the first two chapters are the history of Paul's apostleship and his gospel. The second two chapters are the theology of what it means to be members of the new covenant. And the last two chapters are the ethics, or life in the spirit. And so we'll work through those a little bit as we make our way. Uh, I think slightly better arguments exist for saying that this letter was written to the churches in the southern Galatian region, uh, which is to say these were the churches that Paul probably planted on his first missionary journey recounted for us in Acts 13 and 14. What that means is I take this letter to have been written before the Acts 15 Jerusalem Synod, where the final kind of discussion regarding uh, the, what to do with Gentile converts took place. I think this happened between then. But whether or not that timing is right, it doesn't change the argument of the letter. As we study Galatians, I hope to show that Paul's argument in this letter turns on this. His arguing that we have to rightly understand God's people's relationship to the different covenants that he has had down through time. 
I hope to show that as we go through. I think it'll be critical. Uh, If you misunderstand your relationship to the covenants, you can skew the gospel. And this morning, he says, the misunderstanding of their relationship to the covenant skews the gospel so far that they had actually denied the gospel itself. One last introductory note is, this is one of the only one or two letters that Paul skips his usual prayer of thanksgiving. Uh, normally, we would greet each other saying, hi, how are you? Well, when you're writing a letter, we tend to put our, our uh, signature at the end, right? Because we figure they've seen our address at the front or they know what's coming from us. Well, you know, letters were written on scrolls, so you didn't like roll it down to the bottom to see who it's from and roll it back up to the top. So you started with, Paul, this is who I am. I'm writing to you, and I greet you, and then typically Paul gives thanks for them. Not in this letter. In this letter, he jumps to a warning and a rebuke and even an anathema. And that tone will play itself out through the rest of this letter at key points that we'll consider as we go. Well, there's some of the larger setting for the letter for you. Let's begin with greeting the Galatians. Look again at verses 1 through 5. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, we can be tempted to read past the intros and outros of Paul's letters, thinking "Ah, that's kind of some basic information. We would do that to our detriment. Most of the intros and outros of Paul's letters are giving you in seed form large chunks of his argument that he's going to work through in that book. And that is exactly what he does here. Uh, He introduces himself as Paul, an apostle. But then he pauses And he instantly says, but my apostleship has nothing to do with humans. There was no man who made me an apostle or appointed me apostle. It didn't come from human beings. No, it came from the risen Jesus Christ. So Paul is already hinting at something that will be seen later in this very chapter that we'll come back to in a bit. Uh, The second part of Paul's argument that he hints about is his gospel outlined there in verses 3 and 4. Paul the apostle greets them with grace and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Notice carefully, the text does not say he died for sin as a category. He gave himself for our sins. Jesus died not for the blanket category, this ethereal issue of sin out there. He died for our sins. Moreover, Jesus didn't die hypothetically, To possibly deal with sin? No, Paul continues with a purpose clause. So that in giving his life for his people, his death accomplished their redemption, their rescue from this present evil age. See, friends, Jesus is not a hypothetical savior. He's not an almost savior. He doesn't create a vat of salvation. He actually saves his people. He secures them. God actually exodused his people, delivering them from bondage. Jesus' death actually saves his people. So we dare not minimize the power of the cross by lessening the effectiveness of what Jesus did. No, the text is clear. Jesus died for our sins. He delivered us. And specifically, Paul says he delivered us from the present evil age. Now, Most of us, kind of modern people, depending upon what books or articles you read or what news channels you might watch, 
you probably think of present evil age in world news categories. It's this or that political issue or global issue. Well, for Paul, that's not what's happening here. You see, in Jewish theology, there was only two ages, right? There was this age, and then there was the age to come. And in Jewish thought, this age would go on until the resurrection from the dead happened that we learned about in Daniel chapter 12. And then when that resurrection happened, the age to come, the eternal age to come, would, break, would, would begin. But what Paul says in the intro here is the one who made him an apostle is the risen Christ. So in Paul's theology, the age to come of the resurrection age has broken into time. And God's people are now those who are spiritually resurrected in him. We're those who are born again, or to use the categories Paul will use later in this letter, we've been made new creations in Christ. He, resur- he saved us, delivered us from this present evil age. So notice he doesn't deliver us by beaming us out or by yanking us out of this present evil age. He does it by making us new creatures in Christ, by giving us an eternal hope in his Son. And he does all of this according to the will of God our Father. So, in other words, Paul's introduction here gives us his gospel in four points. That Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God. Or you can summarize it as my argument says. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Well, by way of application, Christian, do you see how much doctrine is loaded into this introduction? I mean, it's just full So I would just wonder, do you see doctrine and theology as essential or as extra credit? Uh, Maybe you tend to be fine with a little bit of doctrine, or maybe you personally like a lot, but you worry that a lot of doctrine in a church could turn off maybe newer believers or seekers. Well, I I applaud your desire to have in a heart to see new believers come. But uh, remember that this issue of a church avoiding doctrine and simplifying things is an old tale. As a matter of fact, it goes all the way back to at least the days of Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher who was dealing with this exact same thing. Now, he's a little bit bolder than I am, but he says it this way. Some fanatics seem to have accepted the notion that as soon as a minister finds himself addressing the unconverted, he should deliberately avoid his usual doctrinal subjects because it is supposed to be that no conversions will ever occur if he preaches the whole counsel of God. This practice suggests that we are supposed to conceal truth and utter half-falsehoods in order to save souls. This is to suggest that we are to coax sinners to faith by exaggerating one part of the truth and hiding the rest until a more convenient time. And then he says, this is a strange theory. I agree with him. It's quite contrary to Fosdick, that's for sure, who says opinions may differ, but love is what matters. Now, Christian, what I hope you learn from study of Galatians is this, is that doctrine is necessary. You see, it is impossible to rightly read the Bible and to make it practical to our life if it's not whole, robust, biblical theology. To fail to do so is to, to use Spurgeon's phrase, convince ourselves or comfort ourselves with partial truths or half-falsehoods. See, friends, the Christian gospel is necessarily theological. It says that God the Father planned redemption, that the Son became incarnate and bought our redemption, and the Holy Spirit applies that redemption to God's peoples. So, friends, you need not be a scholar, but every Christian is a theologian. There's no way around it. 
The only question is, are we growing? Are we becoming better theologians? Now, let me say, I am so thankful for the work that I see in this church. I'm so grateful for the ladies gathering to read through a great book, wrestling through the doctrine of God. As I prayed earlier, I'm thankful for the men's and women's Bible studies, uh, for the Sunday school classes. I encourage you, come join us in the fall after Labor Day when we start a survey of the Old Testament. We need to be those who are growing because we are theologians. Are we theologians who are getting better at recognizing truth versus error? Because that will play into our second point. Well, having seen this greeting, we now come to Paul's anathematizing of the agitators. Look again at verses 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are returning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse, as we have already said. So now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Well, as I've said, Paul seems to be writing to these churches that he planted probably less than a year ago. And that's why he says he's astonished at how quickly they are abandoning. So short a time had passed when Paul himself was there preaching this gospel that he has just outlined to them. And Paul says that changing the gospel is to deny it entirely. Jesus plus anything is nothing because there is no other gospel. Now, he doesn't elaborate here on what it is that they are changing, but he will, throughout the rest of this letter, engage with it. So we'll pick it up as we go along. Now, he calls down a curse. The NIV is rather gentle here. Uh, they're under God's curse. The NET renders it a little bit more accurately, I'd say. It says, let them be condemned to hell. Paul is being bold. There's no nuance here. There's no gentleness. For Paul, this is a line in the sand. This is not the line between merely life and death. This is between heaven and hell. From eternity with Christ and eternity separated from him. Well, if we connect this passage and what Paul is writing to these churches to do with other passages, like 1 Timothy 5, 19-20 and elsewhere, we learn that it is the church's responsibility before God to remove false teachers. Now, the curse Paul lays on these teachers is the curse of God at the end, but the local church must not tolerate it. So see, members of Bethany Baptist Church, hear me clearly. One of the key parts of your membership and calling to be members of this church is that you defend the gospel. That means if I or anybody else gets up here and preaches something that distorts the gospel, your call is to remove us. You have to do it. But notice what that means. It means the members of this church need to really know the gospel well. It means you must be Bereans, as we've been saying, studying to understand the scriptures. And one critical aspect of knowing the gospel is knowing what is not the gospel. Because you can lose the gospel by either adding or taking away. And this is why you've heard me talk about theological triage. Uh, it's just like in the nurse's ward, right? If you go in and your pinky is bleeding, you're going to sit there for six hours. If your pinky is missing, it might be two hours. If your arm is missing, it will be two seconds. Theological triage. Not everything is quite of the same level of importance. 
First-tier doctrines are like those ones we read in the Nicene Creed, the, the ones that shape Christianity. Outside of those, there is no more gospel. It's been changed. Uh, Second-tier issues are those issues which define the bounds of a local church. They're either-or issues that a church can't do both. You cannot both say baptizing babies is the right thing to do and not. You have to pick and choose, and that's going to define the borders of your local church. And then there's third-tier issues. Well, make up your mind. Decide. We can debate about it anytime we want to. Carol and I were debating about the end times just this morning. I love it. It's great. That's the way it should be. But see, friends, combining theological triage with John 17 shows us how careful we have to be. Because in John 17, Jesus prayed for the unity of church. So much so that that local church and their unity and love for each other, he says, would be a light to the watching world. And the world would see the local church's unity and love and they would know that the Father sent the Son. So I agree wholeheartedly with the pastor who said this. I conclude that it is a sin to divide the body of Christ. To divide the body that he prayed would be united. To say that we must agree on a certain view of alcohol or a certain view of schooling or a certain view of the millennium in order to have fellowship is, I think, unnecessary and unwarranted and therefore condemned by Scripture. Friends, adding to the gospel is distorting the gospel. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And Paul says that anyone who distorts the gospel is under God's curse. So let me apply this really practically to the members here at Bethany. And I've mentioned before that there are a couple elements of our longer doctrinal statement which are a little challenging that we need to refine. Moreover, I've mentioned that sometimes it seems the constitution of this church can be used as a kind of appendix to the Bible. Well, because it is the church who is responsible to make changes, it's the church who has the final say. Uh, No one else gets to do that. It has to be the church. Paul didn't write this letter to the elders at the churches of Galatia. He wrote it to the churches of Galatia. It's the church's responsibility to make sure that they are studying and refining those things. But the New Testament tells us that elders lead. So elders lead in that process, and part of that leadership is to prayerfully review those documents, to resubmit them to the probing light of Scripture, and resubmit them to the church for the church to make that final call. So members of Bethany, I encourage you, pray for your elders. You should do it always. We need your prayer, but particularly as we seek to re-examine all of our church documents under the probing light of Scripture. We have no authority to make changes. We only have the authority to lead And then we submit them back to the church to make those decisions. Well, looking back at the text, notice how bold Paul is here. He claims that even if we're here right now, if an angel comes and rips the roof off of this place and kicks me out of the pulpit and starts preaching something to you that is not the gospel, your job is to rush him, get him out of here. He's not to be allowed to continue. Now, that might be hard because angels are probably a lot stronger than us. But you understand the idea. That's how serious this is supposed to be. And so maybe you're here this morning and you're visiting. And maybe you're not a Christian. Uh, and maybe you're hearing Paul here and you're thinking, this guy is rather exclusive. I mean, he just, he's just a black and white dude. There's no gray. Uh, Paul clearly opposes the all you need is love or love wins or just be a good person claims that are so popular today. And maybe you might be a little turned off by these exclusive claims. Uh, If that is you, I I would love to get a chance to speak with you afterwards. 
In particular, I'd love to buy you a copy of Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, because I think he helps to speak to those points very well. Uh, For example, he mentions that all religious views and all non-religious claims about religion have to fall along the line of exclusivity sooner or later. He writes this, Skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection is itself a religious belief. It assumes God is unknowable, or that God is loving but not wrathful, or that God is an impersonal force rather than a person who speaks in Scripture. All of these are unprovable faith assumptions. In addition, their proponents believe that they have a superior way to view things. They believe the world would be a better place if everyone dropped traditional religious views of God and truth and adopted theirs. You see, friends, everyone has exclusive religious views, for or against. So if that might be you this morning, I would love to get a chance to speak with you further. I will tell you for myself, over the years of engaging with many people and trying to answer questions that people have about Christianity, I've tended to find that G.K. Chesterton's quip is close to the mark. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's often been found difficult and left untried. Well, friend, again, if that describes you, I'd love to speak with you afterwards. But we've seen Paul give his greeting to the Galatians, and now we've seen Paul anathematize the agitators. But then we read verse 10. Look at verse 10 again. It's a rather strange verse. Verse 10, he says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Maybe you're like me and you read that verse and think, what is that doing here? <laughs> did, did Paul like, forget his train of thought? No. Verse 10 is a transition. And it is helping to set up where he's going to go. But in order to understand what he's doing in the rest of this chapter and then the first part of chapter 2, the reason he tells this big, long story about himself, we have to do what theologians call mirror reading. Mirror, as in looking into a mirror. And this is where we read what Paul argues and we try to tentatively say, oh, this is what he was responding to. So all of a sudden, for Paul to go from anathematizing people who changed the gospel to, am I trying to please humans? We mirror read that and say, oh, these agitators probably are charging that Paul just wants to grow. But Paul just wants to work his way up through the ranks, right? That's what he's doing. Paul's just one of those guys who he's trying to get ahead. He's kind of a secondary apostle, you know? He's not one of the original. And so he's just trying to to build himself up. That seems to be what's happening here. And that's why in verses 11 and 12, Paul gives us his thesis which he is then going to seek to prove in the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Look at 11 and 12 with me. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. We've heard this before in his introduction, right? So notice what Paul's doing. He's responding to what seems to be a charge where they have said, look, His gospel isn't all that. It's missing some pieces. So we're going to help him out. So we've come to give you the full gospel. And as we go, it seems like they're giving him the full gospel that is allegedly tied to Jerusalem and those things. So we're going to tentatively say this is why Paul's writing his argument the way he is. Okay, so with his thesis out of the way, he wants them to know that his gospel didn't come from a person. Nobody taught it to him. He didn't learn it from anybody else. 
He received the whole thing as a revelation from Jesus. And he doesn't tell us when or where or how. We'd love to know. All we know is Paul didn't learn it. He didn't go to seminary. He was revealed this gospel by God himself. And then he's going to go on and start to tell his story. So let's go ahead and read his story real quick, 13 through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult with any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. Now do you see the reconstruction that we've kind of set out? Seems the agitators are, are claiming that Paul's gospel was weak, his apostleship was weak, uh, he was hanging on the coattails of the Jerusalem people. And Paul responds, well, my gospel came straight from Jesus, the risen Lord himself. And then he goes back and tells the story. Well, he was zealously persecuting the church. And wow, he was zealously persecuting the church. God claimed him. Paul is careful to note, God did not decide to claim him then. No, God had set him apart from his mother's womb. God chose Paul before he was born. God effectively, effectually called Paul by his grace when, we're told, he was pleased to reveal his son in him. Even while Paul was a Jesus-denying persecutor of the church. So notice how Paul's testimony works. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you've heard plenty of testimonies. Notice how Paul tells his testimony. He speaks of his wickedness, of his persecuting the church of God, of his personal desire to grow among his own people. And then he speaks of God's radical work of salvation. As if for Paul, his salvation was entirely God's doing. It was on God's timetable, and it was when God was pleased to do it. He claimed Paul. And Christian, I'd say we would do well to speak of our salvation, our testimony, as Paul does. When were you claimed by Christ? That's what our testimony is. And maybe some of you here this morning, though, maybe you just grew up your whole life in a Christian church. Maybe you don't really have that moment that you can speak of. Praise God for that. My prayer for all the children of this church is that very thing. I pray that there would be no testimonies of the children of Bethany. Join with me in praying for that. I pray those little ones over there will get to be 15, 20, 30, 40, and just say, oh, my parents loved me and took me to church, and I learned about Jesus, and I've never not loved him. That's what we pray for, friends. So that's our hope, that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're saved, but I don't know when. It wasn't like Paul. But then there's others of us who might have more of a Paul testimony. And Paul's conversion is so radical. Move from persecutor to preacher like that. So friends, another point of application, may this give you hope for family, for sons and daughters, for siblings and parents, for spouses who still don't know the Lord.
who have no desire for the things of God. Maybe they grew up in the church, and maybe they've long since left. If God can grab Paul and make a preacher out of a persecutor, oh, he can save your lost brother, sister, sibling, spouse, or parent. So friends, we press on in prayer for the lost. We, we press on saying, God, your hand is never short. You can save. And, and that's what we seek to do on Sunday evenings in our prayer meeting. We, we take time set aside to pray for God to save. Oh, to save our relatives and family, yes, of course, but also to do a work here. Paul says, God set him apart from his mother's womb. And when God was pleased to reveal his son in him, he did. And that's what we pray for those relatives and friends and family of ours who don't know him. Well, Paul had laid how, out how God claimed him. And for the specific purpose that God claimed him was to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And God did the saving. He did it for his purpose to gospelize the Gentiles through Paul. And having laid out this God-centered vision of his salvation and appointment into ministry, Paul then says he didn't consult anybody. He didn't talk to anybody else because Jesus gave him everything. He got Jesus seminary. That has to be the best seminary, right? And so he didn't go anywhere else. He didn't talk to anybody else. He went up to Arabia for three years and Damascus. Now, we don't know what happened there. We're not told. There's a hint, maybe, in 2 Corinthians 11, 32 and 33, that Paul was booted out of Damascus. So maybe Paul went up to Arabia and just kept on doing ministry, like just jumped into it. We just don't know for sure. Regardless of what he was doing there, the point was, his gospel didn't come from Jerusalem, and his apostleship didn't come from Jerusalem, and nobody in Jerusalem makes him more or less of an apostle. He'll really unpack that, Lord willing, next week in chapter 2. But it was after three years that he went up and decided to become acquainted with Peter or Cephas. And he went and he got to know him, and he said he didn't meet anybody else. He, well, it, there was James, I guess. You can see him thinking while he's writing. I didn't see anybody else. Oh, I guess James. Yeah, I saw James. He's a good guy. So he tells him about this. But nobody in Jerusalem knew who he was. No one in the whole church knew him by face. All they heard was that the one who used to persecute us, who sought to destroy us, is now preaching the gospel and the faith he once tried to destroy. It's a fascinating conversion story. And Paul tells it to counteract these false teachers who are bringing charges against him. But there's one other layer in here that can be easy to miss. And we'll see it later more explicit. But did you catch, he said, for three years I didn't go up to Jerusalem? Did you catch how he called his life in Judaism his former life in Judaism? In Paul's mind, he is now a Christian. Oh, ethnically, he's a Jew. That's never going to change. But he's a Christian. Uh, he doesn't go to the feasts. No faithful Jew could do that. A faithful Jews had to go up to the feasts three times a year. Not Paul. For three years, he didn't go up to the feast. He doesn't need to. This is a massive, earth-shattering fix and change that takes place by understanding how the covenants work. And that's how his argument is going to unfold in the rest of this book. But basically, you can summarize Paul's argument of his gospel like this. Friends, the only access to God is through Jesus Christ. It's not through Jerusalem. It's not through a temple made with stones. It's not through feasts and sacrifices. No, God will never again be accessed through a temple made of stone. Uh, never again will God be appeased through a blood sacrifice. Now, God created the world for his glory and the good of his people, and we sinned against him. 
ripping our fellowship with God apart. In His holiness, He cannot have sinful people in His midst. And so we were removed. And He installed the the, the tabernacle system and later the temple system with the veil to separate us from God. And that's why three times a year the Jews went up to Jerusalem to meet with God. But Paul said, you don't need to do that anymore. No, see, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, no longer grants access to God. It's done. Now the only access is found through Jesus Christ. That is bubbling underneath the surface. He's going to make it clear in chapters 3 and 4, but it's there, hovering. You don't need to look to anything else other than Jesus. Because Jesus plus anything equals nothing. But Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Well, I opened the sermon mentioning Harry Emerson Fosdick and his most famous sermon. Well, 13 years later, he proudly preached a recap, you could say, and he had claimed this. Well, we have already largely won the battle we started out to win those years ago. Fundamentalism is still with us, but mostly in the backwaters, he claimed. Well, friends, it is my hope and prayer that as we study this letter to the Galatians, that we will see, apart from the eternal Son of God taking on flesh, apart from the virgin birth, apart from his death on the cross and the empty tomb of his resurrection, apart from that, there is no hope because there is no other gospel. So may we press on in this gospel of the risen Christ who has delivered us from this present evil age, bringing us in as new creatures in Christ, resurrected in him, made alive in his son sent out to live a light to the nations for the gospelizing of the Gentiles. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for your gospel. Uh, We thank you that as it's been well said, it, it is a stream in which a child can wade, and yet it is also one in which elephants can swim. And we pray that you would deepen us in our love for it, our understanding of it, and our trust in Jesus, the one who secured our redemption for us. We pray all this for his sake. Amen.